wasting no time at all. Next, it is my pleasure to introduce Professor Kevin Esfeldt. He is a professor at the MIT Media Lab, where he leads the Sculpting Evolution Group, which specializes in developing tools to reshape populations and ecosystems. He received his PhD from Harvard in 2010 for inventing a synthetic microbial ecosystem for rapidly evolving useful biomolecules. He then went on to help pioneer the development of a powerful new method of genome engineering based on CRISPR. In 2014, Kevin and his team were the first to outline how CRISPR could be used to build evolutionarily stable gene drives capable of altering wild populations of sexually reproducing organisms. Recognizing the potential implications of a unilateral method of reshaping shared ecosystems, he and his colleagues detailed ways to control, block, or even reverse changes made by gene drives while emphasizing the importance of laboratory safeguards to ensure that they do not accidentally escape into the wild. To set an example for future research in this field, they chose to reveal their findings before, reveal their plans before experimenting with CRISPR gene drives so that public discussion could guide research and safeguards. Because there is little precedent for deciding whether, when, and how to use technologies that affect entire communities, Kevin seeks to establish a new model of open and responsive science that allows communities to guide the development of powerful technologies. Please join me in welcoming Professor Kevin Esfeldt. Thank you. So rather than talking about any particular technology, or science. I want to talk about the scientific enterprise as a whole. Now, science, of course, is vision. It allows us to predict the consequences of our actions. Technology is power. It gives us new possible actions to take. And together, the future will depend on how good we are at science and technology. I'm concerned that the social technologies that we have inherited, that have evolved over time for developing science and technology, may not be adequate to the challenges ahead. Specifically, I'm concerned about the potential negative consequences of discovering the wrong technology, and whether or not we have any defenses against that. So to begin, what do we need from applied research? That is, on the technology side, what do we want out of the system? I would say we need technologies that are powerful enough to solve our problems, to make the world a better place, reduce suffering, ensure that we have a future, and do so without endangering civilization. Before, it was mainly a question of how fast can we make advances, because we didn't have the power to do meaningful damage. I suspect that that is no longer the case. So why be skeptical of science and technology as they're done now? Ideally, we want advances to be fast, so that we can solve problems more quickly. And yet, most of us conceal our research plans from other scientists. We're running, a, to some extent, within limited boundaries, a blind search algorithm. Why? Is that efficient? Well, no. Similarly, speed isn't everything. It's also about coordination and direction. You know, typically, if you're evaluating a research problem, you look at, is it important? Is it feasible? Is it neglected? And you want some combination of those things. Do we really think that most labs evaluate everything for the neglected? Or do we see lots of labs moving towards the high-profile, new, hot discoveries? Are the funders allocating money efficiently? Is the research safe? That is, who out there exactly is watching for potentially dangerous advances? Are they different groups? Do we trust them? Do they know what they're doing? What are their backgrounds? 
How often do they meet? And even more importantly, supposing they do identify something, do they have the power to intervene? And what should they do? How much deliberation should there be about a technology that, if made public, would constitute itself a threat to civilization? How do we deal with that? Now, should we expect the existing research ecosystem to be any good at these things? And I would say that, in general, we should not, because no one designed the scientific enterprise. It evolved from a set of earlier cultural institutions and incentives, but it did so in a way that we shouldn't expect to be particularly adaptive even to past challenges, just because ecosystems are not, generally speaking, targets of adaptive natural selection. That is, a forest does not become a better forest because it is competing against the prairie. Evolution acts on the individual replicators. So the forest might become slightly more efficient as its components are selected for greater efficiency. But the forest as a whole is not going to be a better forest because it has to compete with other ecosystems. And the same largely would be true of science. So we should not expect a system that largely was not consciously designed by any rational human, nor was particularly evolved to be better at its job, to be well adapted to even past challenges, and now consider that very recently the cost of sharing information between researchers went from very expensive, that is, ink on paper and then ship many copies, to zero. And I think it's manifestly obvious that science has not adapted to this. The challenge of discussing any of these topics is that we can't really talk about the actually dangerous things. So I can't just say, here's an example of something that probably should have been done differently because we're now in greater danger because of it, because then I would be calling attention to that. So instead, I'm going to talk about something that a lot of people think is dangerous, but actually is not, namely gene drive. So CRISPR gene drive happens if you encode the CRISPR editing system into the genome. So you insert DNA encoding, CRISPR nuclease, guide RNAs telling it where in the genome to cut, plus whatever change you want to spread. Put that into a germline cell of the organism. CRISPR will cut the target site. Homology-directed repair inserts it. Now the cell knows how to do genome editing on its own. It will produce the CRISPR components, cut the other copy, copy itself over. The real magic happens when the organism mates with a wild type. Because one of the parents had two copies, all the offspring are guaranteed to inherit one. And in those offspring, editing happens again. It cuts the wild-type version, replaces it with the new edited version, meaning the next generation is guaranteed to inherit. And this occurs on and on and on. You can think of it as a recursive find-and-replace that you've released into the population until eventually, theoretically, if you do it right and build it in a stable manner, you can edit every organism. It's important to emphasize that this is a self-replicating, I think of it as a one-to-many technology. That is, it's something that one person can do that can have massive network effects because it can affect an entire population. It's reasonably accessible. The limiting step is not ability to use CRISPR to design this. This is pretty trivial to design. The limiting step is can you deliver DNA into the germline of a sexually reproducing organism? But there are at least thousands of fruit fly researchers that can certainly do that, and quite a few in other organisms. And it, it is capable of spread in the shared environment. We'll talk about that a little bit more. And the truly disturbing thing, at least from a democratic representation standpoint, is that it's, in principle, unilateral. One researcher can just build one and let it go. It will take a very, very long time to spread, but in principle, one person can do it without asking anybody else. But despite this, it's not actually a dangerous technology, and that's because it's an incredibly ineffective weapon. 
That's because it's slow to spread. It only spreads vertically down through generations. And even fast reproducing organisms, well, aren't that fast. So it's slow. It's easily, in fact, it's unfailingly detectable via sequencing. That is, if you just sequence the genome and you look for a combination of a CRISPR component with a eukaryotic expression signal, that never occurs in nature. So you can always see it. And once you see it, you can build another find and replace element that you tell to find the first one and replace it. You cannot build one that is invulnerable to this. CRISPR is too versatile. So what about ecology? Let me be the first to say that we do not understand how ecosystems work. They are fantastically complex. However, most laboratory gene drive systems would have no ecological effects whatsoever. They just change the organism by inserting the CRISPR components, which we know don't have large-scale fitness effects. In fact, that's much the point. And usually they would change some marker. They would say, carry green fluorescent protein and make it glow. Well, that's not going to be adaptive, and natural selection is going to quickly eliminate the green fluorescent protein, and the organism will be, much will be largely unchanged. But it poses substantial social risks. That is, we have to consider the social environment as well, and public trust in our ability to continue developing and using technologies like this. And in this case, a single laboratory accident involving a gene drive system or some form of unauthorized release could be pretty devastating to public trust in science. Think about a headline of scientists accidentally convert entire species into GMOs. Is CRISPR to blame? And at that point, uh, your stock in Editas might not be worth so much, George. An accidental spread is a legitimate risk. We, we always thought that it probably would be, but we did some modeling recently, led by Chuck Noble of George, George and Martin Novak's group, and showed that if you take the weakest possible drive system that's been reported in the literature to date, only copies itself half the time, not evolutionarily stable at all, it goes up to 30% of the population before it gets outcompeted by resistant alleles. But it only takes 10 organisms introduced into a population to reliably invade it. Two gives you about a 50% chance of beating that process of going up to 30% frequency. In short, the weakest reported drive system is highly likely to invade most or all populations connected by gene flow of that target species. You don't really even have to try. This is just dropping those components in. That's it. Now, my group is working on localized versions of gene drive systems called daisy drives, for which you could, for example, run a field trial. But the point is that we are doing that, but just about nobody else is. Everybody else is working with the full-on version. Now, I should note that this was precedented. Austin Burt noted that natural gene drive systems, of course, do this and have for hundreds of millions of years. But he said, well, if we can copy this method, this cutting and pasting method, which several natural gene drive systems do, if we could adapt it, then we could alter or suppress all of the mosquitoes and potentially get rid of malaria. And he's been working on doing this since 2005. And now with CRISPR, and using CRISPR gene drive, it looks like target malaria is going to be successful. But an accident, of course, would make it a lot harder than it already is to get agreement from all of those African countries that would be affected. And one single death in a clinical trial set the field of gene therapy back by a decade. Given the estimated toll of malaria and the current best assessment by Gates and OpenPhil that gene drive is the single best chance at eradication, you delay target malaria by a decade and you have potentially caused several million otherwise preventable deaths of children under five. That's a lot. 
Now, to the extent that we handled this wisely, I'm not sure that we did. I think we, we think we did our best. If it had been up to me, it would have been a disaster. Fortunately, I know someone much wiser than I am. And he introduced me to other people who added their own wisdom. And Ken Oya arranged for us to speak to a working, to a working group. That was just a workshop on the ecological implications of synthetic biology. And so we had ecologists, ethicists, regulators, national security people, and representatives of environmental NGOs, and we all talked about it. What should we do? And this is where we decided that, no, it's probably not dangerous, and so it's probably best to move forwards, and we should violate standard scientific culture and publish before we actually show that it works. Because we wanted to set this precedent that for this kind of experiment, you shouldn't take actions in the lab that could affect other people without giving them the opportunity to have a voice. So our first papers were published in 2014. We then immediately, um, or not immediately, but after a few weeks, tested it in yeast, and it worked on the first try. And we, the first thing we did was check to make sure that all the safeguards that we put out there, saying, if anybody wants to experiment with this technology, please, please, please do it safely. And we showed that they all worked. The reason we were concerned by this is that not so much that someone knowingly working with gene drive and aware of what it could do would make a mistake, although that's, in fact, very possible, but especially that so many labs were who had never used CRISPR before were then jumping into the field, we were concerned that a lab might unknowingly develop CRISPR gene drive as a laboratory tool while not seeing that it might have implications for wild populations. And this would, of course, risk an accident directly, but especially if they published it without mentioning this problem, then it's be res it'd be very easy to see other labs just copying it and not taking precautions. And despite all of our efforts, this still happened. A lab developed it for precisely that reason, and the reason why there has not been an accidental release to our knowledge is primarily that the graduate student involved did take some precautions, not nearly as much as we would like to see, but did take some precautions, they chose a gene that was particularly costly for fitness. And when they wrote up their manuscript and sent it to the same journal in which we had published our call for safeguards, by the way, it got through two senior reviewers and, a se and an editor who did not see the problem. But a journalist sent George a copy asking for comment, and we immediately Skyped them and said, can you please discuss safeguards in your paper and add that? And they very generously agreed. And later on, they even joined us in a scientific working group that we convened to develop a consensus set of recommendations for what all laboratories should do. So the lesson of this overall is that even brilliant and well-meaning scientists cannot reliably anticipate the consequences of what they're doing. We're just too specialized in order to stay at the cutting edge. And even if somebody does anticipate that something might go wrong, we can't effectively warn others because not everybody reads every article in every journal, not even science. So this is a problem. As it turns out, CRISPR gene drive isn't particularly dangerous. But five years ago, no one imagined that we would have this capability. No one imagined it. So if this had been dangerous, what would we do? You can argue that this would have been maybe best case scenario, see it coming. But if it had turned out to be dangerous, then presumably in that workshop discussions, or even earlier, we would have called in some different people and had some hard discussions, but what would we do? It was basically inevitable. We would have a limited window of time in which to do something. 
So the overall problem, technological power is increasing. And as long as research is conducted behind closed doors, you can never know who's doing potentially dangerous things. So suppose that there exists at least one accessible new technology somewhere near our cone of technology space that we're advancing into, whose discovery and release would constitute a global catastrophic risk. Or in this case, release just means public knowledge of it becomes too widely available or some equivalent. The current research enterprise is highly likely to stumble across it with insufficient warning to do anything at all about it. How can we fix this? I suggest that we should pre-register our experimental plans. This would at the very least provide a couple of years of additional warning in most cases to do something and many more potential opportunities and points for intervention. What's more, we shouldn't just focus on the negative and potential global catastrophic risks. There's also the positives. That is, we're relying on science and technology to become more powerful and solve all of our problems. So if you actually know what your competitors are doing, then to some extent you can make an informed decision over whether you should collaborate or complete or compete with them rather than doing it completely blind. You can respond to, ch to changes and challenges in terms of advances in other fields more quickly. And science should be more reliable. And we know this because fields like psychology are voluntarily starting to pre-register just to solve their reproducibility crisis. It's also required for all clinical trials. And of course, the big one, from the purposes of this discussion, is that it should be safer. Because if everyone pre-registered, then that would provide a lot more time for people of different disciplines who may have the scope, at least collectively, to identify potentially dangerous synergies, would have much more time to identify those and do something about it, whoever they are. That's another problem. But we also shouldn't be under any illusions that this is a uni universally going to be better. It could be confusing. If everyone pre-registered, the literature is vast as is. Most things don't work, so you just multiply the size of literature by several fold. You can imagine that some labs might have an advantage over others. I think it's probably going to be the same labs, but not perfectly. So there's going to be winners and losers, and so people would object on that basis. Credit is a key one. Right now, you don't get much credit for the idea. You only get credit for showing that it works. That's because most things don't work. We need some way of giving credit to the people who proposed a good idea or contributed something essential conceptually that was later shown to work by somebody else. And it might also prove inefficient in some ways because it might deter people from entering an area if they perceive some big, well-funded, established lab is already having claimed it by pre-registering. So there are things that could go wrong. So what we should probably do then is we should do science, or at least the closest we can, we should test it in a single small field of technology development and see what happens. And I would like to volunteer my own. Isn't it nice of me to volunteer my field for everyone else in it? Gene drive is really an ideal field for to serve as a field trial for pre-registration because A, we've already been calling for it for some time. B, at least the self-sustaining invasive version, doesn't really have very much profit potential. Meaning we don't really have to worry too much about the private sector coming in, just because there's not much profit in a single develop at once, let it go, and it solves the problem everywhere in the world technology. So we don't have to worry about that. And there are both moral and practical reasons to think that the technology itself, and it would be better off in this case, if everything was done in the open. 
namely people are far more likely to trust us enough to actually let it be used. But to do that, that means we need to change the incentives because everyone just follows their incentives. So what does that mean? First, journals. Academics in particular, everything is in recognition. Recognition is determined by journals primarily. If all the journals required pre-registration in order to publish something, in fact, if even just Science, Nature, and Cell did, and then it percolated down from there, researchers would pre-register. Funders. If the funders said, we will happily support your gene drive research, however, your grant proposal is going to be public, we would say, okay, money's money. Policymakers, of course, could also say, yes, you can do gene drive, but one of the requirements is that you make your plans public. I don't hold much hope for that happening because I've been yelling about this for some time and not so much. But the, and the problem with all of those is that they're collective action problems in and of themselves, right? The researchers, we're not going to do it on our own. I've talked to virtually everybody in the field. They don't really object to the idea. They can see the advantages, but none of them can do it because they're responsible for their own students. And if they get scooped, that can be it for a student's career. So they say, if you can make everyone else do it, then we'd be happy to. But all of these have just pushed the problem back one step. So the last one we're looking at is intellectual property. That is, theoretically, even to do research in an academic laboratory, you need a license to the relevant technology. If we set up a patent pool that had relevant IP required for CRISPR gene drive, whether our patents or those of other people with related IP, governed by a nonprofit that said, we will give anyone a license for free if they pledge to pre-register all their experiments and take the basic consensus safety precautions in terms of how they run those experiments. I think everyone would take the deal. Do they really want to stand up and fight for their right to do gene drive research behind closed doors where people can't keep an eye on them? I don't think that's a winning argument. I think that this is a stepping stone. If we do it in gene drive, it would just be a test. Is it a good idea? But if we do it there, then we could look at other fields with shared impacts and it might be able to spread. But I think we need to do something because the current closed door model of research is likely to generate new global catastrophic risks. So I'm not just talking about the standard identified tech risks here, global pandemic, synthetic or natural or enhanced or AGI new ones that we have not thought of before in the way that five years ago no one had imagined CRISPR gene drive. It wasn't even there in science fiction. They're probably out there, so let's try to give ourselves enough warning to do something about it. In other words, science should be open until it appears that it's dangerous. Thanks in particular to all of my students for being the real heroes and placing their careers online, and to my many mentors and collaborators who are wiser than I. Awesome. Well, let's have a seat, guys. This is uh, a real honor and, and treat for me to have the chance to, to speak with you both. I'm feeling a little just kind of pulled in a couple different directions here, right? I mean, we have the, the incredibly optimistic uh, talk of super exponential progress and million-fold cost savings and speed up and everything that that promises. But then we've also got this sort of 
I don't know, sort of uh, warning, I guess, for lack of a better word, about how this could sort of get out of control. How do you guys just emotionally feel about your work day in and day out? Is this sort of, do you, do you approach it with a, a sense of excitement or dread, or do you flip back and forth between the two? Well, I think there's an opportunity for uh, innovation in the face of dread. Uh, I think I try, I, I apologize if it sounded like I was enthusiastic. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I normally try not to reassure anybody. I, that when I say an exponential, that could cause you know, excitement or dread, depending on your predisposition. Uh, but the point is that whenever there is a problem, there are sometimes out-of-the-box solutions to it. So we proposed some a while back about doing surveillance on synthetic DNA. It wasn't sufficient just to assume the good guys would do the right thing. Um, you know, Kevin described, I think, a particularly innovative set of solutions. And he was not talking about just things can go wrong. He was talking about really ways that we can keep this on the right track. As a test bed, something that's intrinsically pretty safe. And the list goes on. I think the, it's, it's an opportunity to have a dialogue with a large number of stakeholders uh, and everybody thinking out of the box about both what could go wrong and how to, how to fix it way in advance. I go by my work in a complex combination of elation and sheer terror. No, there's, there's not much sheer terror. It's mostly, I, I am generally an optimist. I think that I would give us you know, probably more than 50% odds of coming out in a good place 100 years from now. Maybe not much more than 50%. But that's pretty good when you consider how good that could be if we do it right. That is to say, we are in such a better place than we have ever been before right now, despite the collective mood in the developed world. We are in a much better place. We've done a tremendous amount of good. And I think the possibilities in diverse areas, everything from animal welfare to mental health and other unappreciated areas that are only now coming into focus, I think we're moving in the right direction, but we're wrestling to change the direction of this behemoth ship that is so incredibly massive and has the weight of just literally, in some cases, centuries of cultural expectations behind it. And the only way to change that is to change the incentives. And even there, that's difficult. So how did you, I mean, both of you seem to be, if not, you know, in label, certainly in spirit, you have a, a deep sense of effective altruism about uh, both of you. How did you come to that? I mean, ethics is not necessarily required in most science PhD programs. How did you guys individually come to embrace this sort of forward-looking ethical view? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, I, I think that when you're doing really cutting-edge technology development as opposed to applying technology that somebody else developed, you have a tendency to, to, to have more uncertainty and, and also but more vision for what's going to happen next. I mean, even if you're not... You know, a visionary, you, you just happen to be closer to it. And I think, uh, you know, I think you, you, you're, there's a natural tendency there, I would, I would hope. Um, but uh, I think it was just the right set of circumstances. I, I had to, to write some ethics papers in order to get IRB approval for my personal genome project now called Open Humans Foundation. And that uh, required reflecting on what I later conclude was the sorry state of affairs of human subjects research uh, uh, practices. And what year, where in, you, that where was in a, your career that was, was that? That was around 2003, 2004. Um, 
Not that I behaved unethically before that, but, <laughs> but it was just a, it, it, was, it was a dramatic case where I had to, 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 to gently push back on the, on the centuries of, of practice in, in um, medical uh, research and, and propose something that I thought was, was better, was more effective uh, and in a certain sense more altruistic, uh, where you donate, you put data, all the data out in the public domain, you inform people more rigorously about the risks they were taking on and the benefits uh, and so forth. And I think that was a real turning point for me where it went from being casually ethical to being very intentionally and publishing and engaging a larger population. Notably, you were already pretty well-known and, and quite well-established at the time. I mean, do you think this is something that younger scientists find it more difficult to do? Do you need that kind of cachet to, to be able to make space to do this? First, let me say that I am not particularly unusual or courageous. I am just at the MIT Media Lab, meaning that to the extent that I ask difficult, provocative questions that anger a lot of very powerful people, that helps my tenure case. (laughs) (laughs) And that's just not true of young scientists working almost anywhere else. So, yeah, you see somebody in a conventional department being really courageous about taking a stand and trying to change things. That's where you know you're seeing real heroism. But it, because it is hard. On the flip side, there does seem to be a generational component to this, if only because science itself has so many problems in terms of the, shall we say, mental health of scientists and opportunities and so forth, that even those of us who got incredibly lucky and made it have seen the system chew up and spit out so many of our good friends that we can't feel very fond of it. And so most younger scientists are more skeptical of the system as it is and, will, and willing to advocate for change than those who have been more established. Yeah, there's a, um, a member of this community who sort of said, you know, almost like a, a telescope that's zoomed in too far and now sort of misses what it was trying to look at that it maybe could see when it was zoomed out a little bit further. The publisher parish scientific, um, you know, kind of modus operandi of the last... 50 at least years, has sort of selected maybe for slightly the wrong thing. Um, do you think that's fair? I mean, do, do you feel like they we're selecting in some ways for kind of people on the treadmill as opposed to people who can kind of step outside of it and think about the bigger picture? I think we're selecting for both. I mean, it's, it's, it's like natural ecosystems and the selection goes on there is, is you know, some of the species will be out of step with what's going to happen next, and there's and there's uh, diversity. Diversity is a good thing. Um, it's it's hard, it's hard to generalize on that particular thing, but I think we need more diversity. We need need more out of the box thinkers, um, as long as that out of the box is taking us in a safer direction. Yeah, that's I would I would agree with that. We it's always dangerous to apply a selection because you are limiting your diversity. And to the extent that you are then faced with a future challenge that is orthogonal to the previous one, you may have lost diversity that would have been useful. So I'm always hesitant to try to do that. On the flip side, when you start getting in, apply enough exponentials to progress and your power to act becomes so much greater, then you really need to be careful because you can't afford a misstep. So then as soon as you're in the game of trying to prevent the black swan, well, there's just no precedent. And... We could be, you know, we could waste all of our resources and our ability to progress trying to be so ultra cautious as to prevent everything. But then that misses the point too. It's actually sort of like 
It's actually sort of like biological immortality, right? It's always this, life is this constant battle between getting older, senescence, and cancer. Well, technology and civilization is sort of the same thing. We need to become increasingly more powerful, harness all those exponentials, solve our problems, make the world better, yet not tip everything over the edge. Everything's a tightrope. There's an idea that has been sort of circulating, I think, with broader uh, acceptance maybe recently from a guy named Yuval Harari who wrote uh, Sapiens, um, and the name of his more recent book is Escaping Me, but he sort of observes... That's right, thank you. Uh, He sort of observes that humans are very good and have always been you know, kind of constantly advancing their ability to gain power and control. But our ability to translate that into actual well-being is very questionable. And he sort of even poses the question, are we better than our, you know, long-ago ancestors who were hunter-gatherers? Are we happier? Are we, you know, in what sense can we really say that we're, we're better off? Certainly we have life expectancy. We have a couple of, of big things. Um, and it certainly seems that there are some near-term like wins, right? Like if we could get rid of malaria and hold all else constant, it seems hard to argue that that wouldn't be really good. But how much of that is there? And then kind of where's the event horizon beyond which we just don't really know what is good? Do you guys have a, is that something that you think a lot about as you think about these rapidly advancing technologies? Well, I would say that evolution cares nothing for us. And so to assume that the natural state of affairs is better is a dangerous fallacy. In some cases, we are adapted to be within a narrow window of like and dislike in order to motivate us to be better replicators. And that means that most organisms have a sort of narrow window of, of, well, of well-being or suffering, minus 10 to plus 10. And evolution doesn't care if we suffer. In fact, the suffering can go pretty bad. But it doesn't have an incentive to make it worse either. That is, we can cause more suffering than even occurs in nature in a concentrated way. But if you similarly, we're not bound by that minus 10 to plus 10 window. So I think a lot of things that we do can push us away from well-being. A lot of the systems we set up on, on an evolutionary game theory basis. But on the other hand, if you want to engineer an animal to be happier than a natural animal, I bet we can do that because it's all neurochemistry and neurochemistry is primarily genetics. And if we decide to make organisms that have a higher intrinsic hedonic set point, then I bet we can do it. Now, why we haven't tried, this is the sort of thing that I'm interested in doing because I'm going to get bored with gene drive soon enough anyway. But, but I think that we have the potential there, but we didn't, these exponentials are still only coming into being, right? It's, The Iroquois saying is one that I always bring up, this consider the, the consequences of your actions unto the seventh generation. Think about seven generations ago, 175 years, what we could do then versus what we can do now. Just even trying to imagine what we could be 175 years hence is almost impossible. But if it goes well, I mean, continue that trajectory. That's the hope. There seems to be an idea, and maybe this is my overinterpretation, that the sort of standard gut feeling that's kind of like, eh, everything's going to be kind of you know, normal, there's kind of a bell curve, and we'll kind of be somewhere in the middle, or maybe we'll be more of an outlier. Um, a lot of what you, you guys are presenting today makes me feel like that is not really the case, and that maybe it's a much more 
bimodal or sort of just radically, you know, bifurcated distribution where we have some really bad outcomes and maybe some also really fantastic outcomes. Do you feel that way? I mean, how would you kind of try to map the space? Obviously, we can't get too quantitative about it, but what do you feel that space looks like? Well, I think Kevin's metaphor for the tightrope, I would push back on a little bit. And it's in the bifurcation, it's the same sort of thing. Is you're, you're going to fall off that tightrope pretty far away. I, I, I think it's within our, it's potentially within our engineering realm to engineer intrinsically wider and wider tightropes. Mm -hmm. Just like, you know, we used to build bridges that would fall down. Uh, but if we have, you know, the resources, we now know how to build bridges that don't fall down and buildings and so forth. And we can make earthquake proof buildings. So it, it's about, a, it's about almost every field of engineering has a strong safety engineering component. It may not be out there in front for everybody to see, but it's, it's, it's part of the education. Uh, I think biolo biological and molecular biological engineering is so new, it really hasn't had much time to develop that. And that's why it looks temporarily like a tightrope in a bi bimodal distribution. I think we're pulling out of that very quickly, thanks to some of the innovative concepts that we're hearing here today. Um, but we need to really push. That, sh that should be the thing. That, that is the thing that has the best return on investment, especially with the high stakes involved. And it's an excellent point. If you have the choice of trying to correct, you know, be one more person trying to correct the balance on the tightrope as opposed to making the tightrope a nice, flat, wide path, go with the latter. Yeah. yeah. We have to do that. Interesting. Um, do we want to take a few questions from the audience? I feel like I, there were so many have come in from the uh, app that I can't possibly go through them all. But um, this is such a great opportunity. Let's take a few. Want to shout one out? Right, say take malaria. We clearly have the drugs, and yet malaria is rampant. Right, we can't just take, but well, we could take out the species, animals, and solve malaria that way. But are we not in this potential sort of um, cycle of technological solutions, as opposed to like tackling actually engineering social interactions and society as a whole to be more effective at solving or preventing those problems? from occurring in the first place. We already have enough technology, enough food, enough everything, and yet we're in this fast way, I think, overall. Uh, I'll just restate the problem for everybody. As I understand it, and raise your hand if I got it wrong, uh, you're, you're saying that we have various solutions, but we're not capable of implementing them. Um, are we on some kind of treadmill or, or rotary? Uh, and you use this example of malaria, where we have the drugs, uh, uh, and they're not, and it's not happening. Uh, I would argue we do not, in most cases, have the technology. Uh, we do not have anti-malarial drugs that work. Um, we we had some that worked, uh, uh, sort of, at the dawn of uh, the problem, like quinine, and uh, and then you know the most recent one is artemisinin. Each of them is is failing faster and faster because of drug resistance. Um, yeah, it could be that gene drives ha run into similar problems. I doubt it, based on the details that we know. Um, but 
It's true of almost every technology. You go through a phase where it looks like you have solutions, then you get bitterly disappointed, then you have a new set of solutions, get less disappointed with those, and eventually you come up with really great solutions, you know. So smallpox vaccines were invented like in the 1500s, um, and they didn't really start working until around, you know, late 18th century. And then eventually, you know, around 1980, there was gone. It was extinct. So it is successful approximation. We get better at it. I would, I would argue that we're, we're not yet, we do not yet have the technology for malaria. Um, but the gene drives are coming along very quickly. And from what I know of it, I would bet that that's either the ultimate or the penultimate step. Yeah, let's do one right here. Oh, regarding a lot of the safety of the gene drives, uh, the safety of a lot of these CRISPR technologies, and it seems like a lot of what's been presented was the work of labs that are very experienced in using the CRISPR technology that are thinking a lot about what the you know, impact that use in the future would be. Uh, but at the same time, going back to this presentation of how you know, much cheaper a lot of these sequencing and synthesis technologies are getting, and there's the movement to sort of democratize things like synthetic biology, uh, have more people doing almost like the DIY bio movement, would you say that something like that is sort of helps mitigate some of the risk, like more eyes on the, pro- on the problem, or that could potentially even worsen the risk? Both. Both. It can, it can, it can. Uh, I mean, we definitely want to uh, tip the balance towards um, surveillance, towards enhanced uh, uh, cooperation and transparency that Kevin was talking about. I, uh, and I think we did, we, we've, done, we've done a number of social hacks that are in the right direction, like the iGEM, I don't know how many of you are familiar with that, but that, when that was founded around 2003, um, the models that we had for competition at undergraduate level were things like robot wars, where you'd have like a buzzsaw killing another buzzsaw. And, uh, and we didn't think that that was a good model uh, for biological uh, competition um, in, in uh, undergraduates, uh, because, you know, bio wars just didn't... So it, we did the opposite, which was we, it, we instituted, uh, uh, encouraged... Um, uh, positive projects with a human uh, uh, component that um, uh, human practices component, ethical component that was part of the, the scoring system um, and, and, it, and the result is, is a tremendous community. The same thing that happened with the DIY bio community is by and large very, very proactive towards safety and community and transparency because they know that all it takes is one little mistake. It doesn't even have to be intentional, um, and it put and it'll sit, it could it could it could stop DIY bio. It could do more than just drive it underground. So, but I think we can't just rest on our laurels. We have to keep pushing and innovating in this in the social engineering as well as the molecular. So we're already a little bit um, over time, I guess. And hopefully you guys will be able to do a little office hours. I don't know if you'll be able to stay, but there are office hours um, just after. I believe you're, you guys are both supposed to be in room 110, if you can make it. Um, one last question. You want to do one more? All right, one more. Um, so um, for something, a new technology that could be a global catastrophic risk, 
you know, by definition, it only have, has to happen once, and you know, we're all screwed. So um, even if you know the major bio labs all agree to a set of safety precautions, then you know, what if in five years some small lab in China that no one has ever heard of, you know, doesn't have the safety precautions, and then they they do it? Or ten years later, you know, it's even further spread. Um, if someone in their basement doesn't have the safety precautions, then they do it. Um, so. Um, as the technology sort of becomes even ever more widely available and keeps propagating down, um, how do you ensure that like, you know, everyone, even you know, 15 year olds in their basement, when they get the technology, um, are safe about it? So I think it's important to recognize that technology can favor defense as well as offense. So I am very hopeful that current approaches to developing rapid vaccines, um, in particular, the adaptive immune system is amazing. Each one of us can evolve our own solutions to have challenge. At the same time, it's not heritable. That is, bacteria are superior to us because their CRISPR systems, once they incorporate new spacers against a given virus, ensure that their offspring are also immune. Whereas, we don't have that. But you take, if you sequence someone who's already had it and survived, or someone who was an elite controller, pull out their antibodies that let them control it, and then use gene therapy to deliver that into a person, that's an instant vaccine. They, you're taking the solution from somebody else, and boom, now they have it. So if that really works out, then you can imagine a production cycle that would then allow us to churn out enough vaccines to squelch any kind of pandemic faster than it can spread. So the hope is that as long as we see it coming, we will be able to develop countermeasures like that and eventually take entire classes of global catastrophic risks off the table. That's the hope. And I would just add to that, there are quite a few existential risks that are independent of technology, and we need to get our act together um, so we have the resources to deal with those things that are inevitable, um, albeit unpredictable, when, the, when they will occur. Um, and I, I think we have a long history of starting with, uh, starting with technology. Many technologies at their beginning are very unsafe. You know, uh, trains used to collide uh, routinely because they ran on the same track without schedules. Um, alternating current was typically used without grounding. Uh, you know, the list goes on and on, and that's what safety engineering is all about. And we, and we need to apply that on the existential risk scale as well. You're right. I mean, it's like a ratchet. All it takes, or it's actually worse than a ratchet. Just once, one thing can go wrong. But we just, we have to create a culture where that's not an option. And also, we need to back up the planet. So, if, there, if there, we're probably on Mars as well, then, then there's a chance that it stays on Earth if something bad happens. Mm. But let's not ha let that happen on Mars or Earth. So one more question just for the benefit of the, the group. Obviously, we've got a, a diverse set of folks here with a lot of different backgrounds. Um, aside from joining your research groups and you know, contributing directly to the science, is there anything that you think folks in an audience like this can do to help contribute to the broadening of this path that you're speaking about? Well, you should get, get engaged uh, 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 politically if you're that, if you're that so inclined. Uh, getting, if you're already on that spectrum, get involved more scientifically. Uh, advocate for science literacy. Um, um, advocate for transparency. Um, that uh, you know, we already—I'm I'm sure many of them, many of you—are in favor of open uh, software and open science, but this takes it at a whole other level. Social engineering, I think, is the key. Now, it sounds ugly, social engineering, right? But at the same time, 
We're looking for, if you were, social hacks that can encourage cooperation. Because cooperation is really the er problem of humanity. Life is evolutionary game theory, and the challenge is to set up the system of incentives and rewards and costs such that we end up cooperating more often than we would otherwise. Professors Esfelt and Church, thank you so much.